Hello, I am Dr. Tenshin Chen, the Editor-in-Chief of Heart Rhythm. Thank you for listening to this podcast covering the June 2018 issue of Heart Rhythm. The first article of this issue is an editorial by Dr. Daniel Morin, our online editor. He summarizes the online development of Heart Rhythm Society publications. The next article is a featured article entitled Prognostic Significance of Ventricular Late Potentials in Patients with Pulmonary Sarcoidosis by Yodogawa et al. from Nippon Medical School in Tokyo, Japan. A video interview between the lead author and Dr. Morin can be found on the www.heartrhythmjournal.com website or on our mobile app. In this study, the authors prospectively studied 74 patients with pulmonary sarcoidosis without overt ECG abnormalities and followed them for 9.8 years. Among these patients, A of 29 with late potentials on signal average ECG developed complete heart block, VT or heart failure. In comparison, only one in 45 without late potentials developed cardiac events. The authors conclude that signal average ECG might possibly be useful for the early detection of cardiac sarcoidosis. This paper is interesting because many patients with sarcoidosis do not develop cardiac complications. I've recently seen a patient who carries a diagnosis of biopsy-proven extracardiac sarcoidosis for 40 years without developing either arrhythmia or heart failure. Accurate early detection of cardiac sarcoidosis will improve the risk stratification in those patients. Next up is irregularity and lack of P waves in short tachycardia episodes predict atrial fibrillation and ischemic stroke by Johnson et al. from Lund University, Sweden. The authors followed 377 AF-free individuals prospectively for 13 years. All patients had 24-hour ECG screening at baseline to detect SVT episodes greater than 5 beats. The authors found short, irregular SVTs without P waves likely represent early stages of AF or atrial myopathy as those arrhythmias were associated with increased ischemic stroke. The authors suggest that 24-hour ECG could identify subjects suitable for primary pre- prevention efforts. An interesting aspect of the study is that the hazard ratio for stroke is high, as high as 14.2. Whether or not oral anticoagulation therapy will reduce that hazard ratio requires further study. The next article is titled Image-Based Criteria to Identify the Presence of Epicardial Arrhythmogenic Substrate in patients with transmural myocardial infarction by Soto Iglesias et al. from Barcelona University, Spain. The authors used late gadolinium enhancement cardiac magnetic resonance or LGE-CMR to detect epicardial scar. They then performed invasive studies to determine whether the patient had arrhythmogenic substrate. They study a total of 38 patients. The results show that in an epicardial scar area of greater than or equal to 14 centimeters square, 
on LGE CMR and mean myocardial wall thickness less than or equal to 3.59 millimeter predict epicardial arrhythmogenic substrate in post-myocardial infarction patients. A main weakness of the study is that the data were obtained retrospectively and that the number of patients is small. Nevertheless, this study opens up the possibility of better non-invasive risk stratification in patients who have suffered myocardial infarction. Next up is prognostic implications of early monomorphic and non-monomorphic tachyarrhythmias in patients discharged with acute coronary syndrome by Hai et al. from University of Hong Kong. They followed 67 patients with early monomorphic and 90 patients with early non-monomorphic VT and followed them for up to five years. About half of the patients with early monomorphic VT died. In comparison, only 30% of patients with early non-monomorphic VT and those without early VT died in five years. This data support the conclusion that early monomorphic VT but non but not early non-monomorphic VT independently predicted all-cause mortality in patients with acute coronary syndrome who survived to hospital discharge. Currently, patients with left ventricular ejection fraction of greater than 35% do not have indication for primary prevention ICD. The results of this study suggest that early monomorphic VT might identify a high-risk group of patients who can benefit from ICD implantation. Perhaps a clinical trial among these patients would be appropriate. Next article is titled, Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease as a Risk Factor for Ventricular Arrhythmias Independent of Left Ventricular Function by Konechny et al. from University of Southern California. The authors retrospectively studied over 6,000 patients they found that COPD patients are at higher risk for VT and mortality. This may not be fully attributed to the confounding effect of systolic heart failure me uh, measured by left ventricular ejection fraction. The patients with COPD are often smokers, which might increase the prevalence of coronary artery disease. In addition, the table one shows that 66% of patients with severe COPD were using beta agonists and only 19% of them were using beta blockers. These factors might also contribute to the increased cardiac arrhythmias in patients with COPD. Next up is techniques for successful early retrieval of the micro transcaster pacing system, a worldwide experience by Afzal et al. from the Ohio State University. The data came from the manufacturer who maintains the database of all devices. All retrievals involved snaring via the delivery caster or a steerable sheath. They studied 11 patients who required immediate retrieval of the device and 18 patients required retrieval 1 to 95 days after the procedure. All procedures were successfully performed. The authors conclude that early retrieval of the micro transcaster pacing system is feasible and safe. The limitation of the study 
is that some operators fail to respond to the request for procedural details, so the details of some of the retrieval procedures are unknown. The next one is long-term mobility and mortality after ICD implantation with procedural complication by Kip et al. from University of Wisconsin. They retrospectively studied over 130,000 Medicare beneficiaries in the National Cardiovascular Data Registry who underwent ICD implantation. They found that the occurrence of complications within 90 days of ICD implantation was associated with increased risk of all-cause mortality or hospitalization at one and three years. One explanation is that severe complications may worsen outcomes. A more interesting explanation is that the skills of the operators and the total number of ICD procedures in the implanting hospitals may influence both the complication rates and the long-term outcomes of the patients. Consistent with those hypotheses, compared with facilities performing fewer procedures, the facilities with greater than 45 procedures a year had superior survival three years after procedural complication. The next paper is also about complications related to implanted devices. The title is Procedural Com Outcomes and Long-Term Survival Associated with Lead Extraction in Patients with Abandoned Leads by Merchant et al. from Emory University. Among 774 patients who had undergone lead extraction procedures, 5% had abandoned leads. Patients with abandoned leads had a lead dwell time averaging 7.6 years, compared with 5.6 years in patients without abandoned leads. Abandoned leads at the time of lead extraction were associated with increased procedural complexity in the future, including a higher rate of bailout femoral extraction and may be associated with lower clinical success. The authors conclude that among appropriately selected patients, consideration should be given to lead extraction instead of abandonment. The limitation is that many patients with abandoned leads may never require future lead extraction. Therefore, whether or not a lead should be abandoned or extracted requires careful patient selection and a shared decision-making. Next up is significance of T-wave inversion triggered by spontaneous atrial premature beats in patients with long QT syndrome by Takatsuki et al. from Gifu University Hospital, Japan. The authors studied 39 long QT syndrome patients. Among them, 10 had a history of torsade points, and others did not. They found that both atrial premature induced T-wave inversion and T-wave patterns are associated with torsade depons, ventricular arrhythmia. Perhaps continuous 12-lead ECG monitoring can be performed in patients with long QT to detect T-wave inversion for risk stratification. The following paper is entitled Clinical Impact of an Additional Left Ventricular Lead in Cardiac Resynchronization Non-Responders by Potakar et al. from Pesach, France. The authors enrolled 84 CRT non-responders and randomized 43 to implantation 
with an additional LV lead, and 41 to a control group. The results showed that the additional lead had no significant influence on outcomes. The authors conclude that although addition of a second LV lead in CRT non-responders is feasible with a high success rate, this approach is associated with a significant rate of severe adverse events and does not provide significant long-term clinical benefits. The mechanisms of CRT non-response remains a mystery. And from this study, we see that simply adding an additional lead does not solve the problem. There are some data showing his bundle pacing may be helpful in this patient population, but those results are preliminary. More studies are needed to solve this important clinical problem. Next up is a paper entitled Uniform Atrial Electrogram Morphology from an Epicardial and Endocardial Perspective by Vendor Dose et al. from Erasmus Medical Center, Rotterdam, the Netherlands. Indo-epicardial asynchrony and the interplay between the endocardial and epicardial layers could be important in pathophysiology of atrial arrhythmias. The authors studied 26 patients undergoing cardiac surgery. They recorded unipolar electrograms simultaneously from epicardium and endocardium at the right atrial free wall during sinus rhythm. The results show that the local epi-endocardial differences in electrogram fractionation occur occasionally during sinus rhythm but will likely increase during arrhythmias due to increasing endo-epicardial asynchrony and functional conduction disorders. The most interesting observation is that the morphology of uniform electrograms can potentially be used as a tool to identify areas of endo-epicardial asynchrony even when electrograms are recorded on only one side of the wall. The next article is entitled Exploiting Iron Channel Structure to Assess Rate Variant Pathogenicity by Kronke et al. from Vanderbilt University. The authors report on a 27-year-old woman with Long QT syndrome. She was found to be a carrier of two variants. One was on the gene KCNQ1 and the other on KCNH2. Both variants were classified as pathogenic by a diagnostic laboratory, in part because sequence proximity to other known pathogenic variants. The authors used co-segregation analysis of the family, patch clamp in vitro electrophysiology, and structural analysis using recently released cryo-electron microscope structures of both channels. They found that only KCNH2 variant was correctly classified as pathogenic, while the KCNQ1 variant is benign. The authors conclude that proximity in sequence space does not always translate accurately to proximity in three-dimensional space. Emerging structural methods will add value to pathogenicity prediction. Several other articles recently published in Harvism also suggest that some pathogenic genetic variants were in fact benign. New methods of genetic analysis are needed to accurately determine whether or not any variant is truly pathogenic or benign, so patients are not misled by the results of the genetic tests. Next up is a paper on calcium commodulin-dependent protein kinase 2 regulation of IKS 
during sustained beta-adrenergic receptor stimulation. The purpose of this study was to investigate CAM kinase 2 regulation on KCNQ1, which is a poor forming subunit of IKS during sustained beta-adrenergic stimulation. The authors identified novel KCNQ1 carboxyterminal sites with enhanced phosphorylation during sustained beta-adrenergic stimulation. Based on these results, the authors conclude that CAM kinase 2 regulates KCNQ1 at site S4A4 during sustained beta-adrenergic stimulation to inhibit IKS. The IKS is a potassium current responsible for shortening the action potential duration and the QT interval during sympathetic stimulation. The ability of Kim kinase 2 to inhibit IKS may contribute to cardiac arrhythmias in various clinical situations, such as heart failure. This paper provides molecular insights into IKS regulation and therefore has significant potential implications. The next paper is written by Nishimura et al. from Yamaguchi University, Japan. The title is Mutation-Linked Excessively Tight Interaction between the commodulin binding domain and the C-terminal domain of cardiac ryanodine receptor as a novel cause of catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, or CPVT. Previous studies showed that mutations in ryanodine receptor type 2, or RYR2, is a common cause of CPVT. The RYR2 function is regulated by its interaction with carmodulin. In the present study, the authors generated a knock-in mouse line with decreased RYR2 binding to carmodulin. These mice developed CPVT after epinephrine injection. The authors also found that the malfunction of RYR2 was caused by an abnormally tight interaction between carmodulin binding domain and a mutated carmodulin-like domain. The clinical implication is that the interactions between these two domains might be a novel therapeutic target for treatment of lethal cardiac arrhythmias, including CPVT. Next up is a review article entitled Exercise Participation and the Shared Decision-Making in Patients with Inherited Channelopathies and Cardiomyopathies by Etheridge et al. from University of Utah. Sports eligibility and the disqualification of patients with cardiac diseases are important considerations for adult and pediatric cardiologists. The 2005 guidelines that addresses this issue have recently been revised and updated, and the new guidelines advocate for a shared decision-making approach in which the well-informed athlete and the family participate in the discussion. In this review, the authors focus on the benefits of sports participation and review the revised guidelines related to sports participation in patients with channelopathies and cardiomyopathies. The next article, also a review article, was written by Jardine et al. entitled The Pathophysiology of the Vasovagal Response. The authors stated that all tilt-sensitive patients appear to progress through four phases. One is early stabilization, two, circulatory instability, three, terminal hypotension, and four, recovery. The physiology responsible for each phase is discussed in this review. 
Next up is a hands-on article by Reddy et al. from Mayo Clinic. The title is Evaluation of Shortness Breath After Atrial Fibrillation Ablation. This review includes a discussion on the so-called stiff left atrial syndrome and optimal approach to managing patients with shortness breath after ablation. In addition to above articles, this month of the journal also published a Josephson and Wellens ECG lesson titled A Narrow QRS Tachycardia with Alternating RI Interval Length in a 24-year-old man. Abstracts from this year's HRS meeting late-breaking clinical trials, four EP news articles, and an expert consensus statement on arrhythmias and cognitive function. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For Harvism, I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Peng Xian Chen.